ask yourself if this thought is helpful or true. Because most of the time, the thoughts we're having in our head in these moments are false assumptions. And unfortunately, no one tells us not to believe what we think. As our children grow, we become the keepers of their calendar. And for those of us parents with anxiety or those that just feel a little uncomfortable in new situations, this can kick up feelings of social anxiety that can be hard to manage at times. From striking up conversations with other parents at the playground, to hosting playdates with our child's new best friend, to attending a birthday party without knowing the other parents there, to even just navigating the perceived and sometimes very real judgments from others... Once we become parents, we often find ourselves in social situations that we may not feel so comfortable in. So joining me today to discuss how common social anxiety in parenthood can be, as well as shed some light on what you can do and offer strategies to allow your child's social skills and interactions to flourish in spite of maybe some of your own social fears is Justine Carino. Justine is a licensed mental health counselor. She's an anxiety treatment specialist, and she's the host of Thoughts from the Couch podcast. Whether you have a diagnosed anxiety disorder or just feel uneasy about the idea of engaging in new social situations on behalf of your child, this episode will help you to identify the problem and begin to challenge some of those fears. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, all. Today, we have Justine Carino here. I'm so excited that you're on the, on the show today. How are you? Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I feel honored, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Thanks. Yeah, so your area of specialization is anxiety, right? Can you talk a little bit yes. about the work that you do? For sure. So I... It took a little while for me to figure out, like, my niche. I feel like as a in private practice, you know, you hear a lot about like, what's your niche? What's your specialty? And going into private practice, I was like, I don't know. I love working with everybody and everything. And then as I started to see more and more clients, I started to realize that my best days in my private practice were the days that I was treating anxiety disorders. And I also think it's a little bit of a mirror. I feel like I'm someone that has a story with anxiety as well. So part of me felt like this is pretty relatable. And I also really fell in love with a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. So it kind of just unfolded naturally where the training I had with CBT was treating anxiety disorders really well. And my clients were having success and I felt good with that as a clinician. And so I just, you know, use my training and education to be more specific towards treating anxiety disorders. Um, And that's kind of how it came my way. Me, myself, as a child, I had selective mutism as a toddler, which, you know, as a toddler, I don't remember it. I remember being really shy. But as I've grown up and my parents tell me more stories about what I was like as a toddler, as I've become a parent and saw my own kids enter toddlerhood, And with my training, I'm like, oh, I was selectively mute. 
you know, this was a lot more than Justine was a shy kid. Like I had some anxiety going on there. So that was an interesting discovery for myself to be like, oh, Mm -hmm. I was kind of a really young kid who had an anxiety disorder, who it manifested with this selective mutism. And for those listening, selective mutism is where a child is very particular about who they're talking to. And for me, it was only my immediate family members and my older brother. Um, So I think I have a personal story with anxiety. And I also just, I'm, I, I kind of, I'm obsessed with anxiety. I see how it manifests physically in people. There's so many people that walk through my door and it's like, I have these fainting spells. I have these migraines. I have IBS. And at the root of it, at least in my practice, we find, well, there's really an anxiety disorder going on here that's been untreated yeah. for so many years. So that's, that's kind of how it, it happened for me. That's so interesting. And it's it's interesting too, because you bring up a really important point, which I don't think we talk about that much, is that a lot of anxiety disorders go undiagnosed. Yes. That yeah. it's 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 actually really common. And a lot of people have maybe from the way they were raised or from other things they've internalized, they they sort of just dismiss it as I need to not be worried about that or I need to just get over that. This isn't a big deal. Um, and they kind of figure out ways to compensate and move on with their lives. But they're, but then these things like you're describing this, maybe it's IBS or maybe it's migraines or these other sort of psychosomatic symptoms emerge. And yes. yeah, when you can kind of go down into the root and find that, that core early relationship to fear and pressure and stress and like understand yes. it a little bit better. You can totally. really help people. Well, I think it's, we normalize it and we're, we think like, oh, everyone thinks this much about things. Everyone worries this much about things. Or if we have parents that are anxious, we, we start to think like, oh, this is a normal way of being until we meet somebody else who may not have anxiety. And we're like, ooh, that's a little different than what I'm used to. Or we, we talk to a therapist and they help us realize it. But I feel like the sneakiest for people is that high functioning anxiety. Like it does doesn't debilitate you and you're busy and you're overachieving and you're so capable, but you have a lot of noise in your head. And Mm -hmm. that sometimes gets internalized with those somatic symptoms because like on the surface level, we're performing, we're doing tasks. Okay. We're, we're performing as a mom, as a spouse in our careers, but we can't sleep at night and we're overwhelmed and we're stressed and our body's running down. So I think that type of anxiety is really sneaky for people. Yeah. And like, can you talk to us a little bit about the different types of anxiety that there are? Sure. So anxiety is, first of all, there's disorder and there's the feeling, right? And I think people forget that too. We are all born to feel anxiety. This is a normal emotion that we struggle with sometimes, just like sometimes we feel sadness or depression, but we also feel happiness and excitement. These are all fleeting feelings that as a human, we were born to have and try and manage and regulate. It becomes a disorder when it's consistent and persistent and interferes with a certain level of our functioning over a certain period of time. And that criteria could be different for every anxiety disorder. But a lot of the common ones for listeners to try and understand is um, generalized anxiety disorder. 
So that is nonspecific. This person can kind of identify as I'm always worrying about everything all the time. It could be that I'm worried I'm going to be late to work. It could be that I'm worrying about what to buy my child for Christmas. I can't make a decision over anything. Decisions are overwhelming. Oh, my child has a fever. I'm catastrophizing. Now they're going to die in their sleep, right? This is the generalized anxiety. I am worrying about everything all of the time. Then we have phobias, which is very specific to a trigger, right? So it's uh, a fear of dogs, a fear of spiders, a fear of flying. So those have their own treatment plans of how to overcome those fears. And sometimes, mm -hmm. most of the time, people can live with a phobia untreated their whole life because they're able to avoid the trigger, right? They may never got, get on a plane and live their life just driving places. They may never have to kill a spider. They may never have to come face to face with um, a snake, right? So we can often adjust our life so it doesn't interfere. But then there's other phobias that can be really overwhelming and that we come to a point where like, OK, we've got to work on this a little bit because it's impacting me in some way. Um, there's PTSD, right, which is post-traumatic stress disorder where a traumatic event occurs and as a reaction, our whole nervous system is impacted. We have a lot of trauma that goes unprocessed. We're hypervigilant. We have flashbacks. We have trouble sleeping. Sometimes there's nightmares. Your world is just shook up. And so that is its own treatment plan, too. I specifically do not treat trauma. I always refer out for someone experiencing PTSD. And I really see EMDR as the best treatment for that. Mm -hmm. um, and we have OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder. So we have so many that listeners may be familiar with. And OCD is when we have obsessions, like we, we have these ruminating obsessive thoughts and we compensate for those and try and manage those through ritualistic behaviors like excessive checking, counting, um, chewing, you name it, I've seen it all. Um, and that has a specific treatment plan too. So yeah. I think they covered most of them. What do you think? Yeah. Well, the one that we were going to get into today is mm. the social anxiety piece. So yeah. I know that we were sort of saving that to really dive into. And I'm wondering, like, how different is social anxiety from generalized anxiety or from like a panic disorder? Yeah. So panic disorder is when someone has a panic attack. And then they have another panic attack and then they start to worry about having continued panic attacks. So they avoid going out in public or in these specific situations because they think it relates to the panic attack and will cause it. Right. So they all can kind of overlap and intertwine, yeah. but they can also be very different. And each one can have a different level of impact on a person. But for social anxiety, um, this is more specific to our social relationships, right? So we have a huge fear of judgment that people are judging us. We're afraid that we're going to embarrass ourselves publicly in some way. Starting conversations can feel really intimidating or uncomfortable for us. We have ruminating thoughts about what to say and how people are judging what we do say when we say it. Um, being the center of attention can be extremely uncomfortable and we avoid, 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 right? And the biggest thing with all anxiety disorders is a certain level of avoidance from something that can trigger that anxiety. So unfortunately with social anxiety, we're avoiding social situations um, because it's so uncomfortable to be in them. 
Yes. And I think one of the things, the reason why I was hoping to talk about social anxiety with you on this podcast was the the sort of unique challenge that parents who experience social anxiety faced in the role of parenthood. Because there's like two big pieces to parenthood that if you have a social anxiety disorder or even just are somewhere on that spectrum of I'm, I'm, I have anxiety around social situations, there's like the one big challenge, which is that being a parent, you are kind of inherently forced to be in these social situations, playdates, birthday parties, PTA meetings, like trying to engage in your community so that your child can build relationships. You're the kind of the gatekeeper for them. So if you are avoiding social relationships, it can be very difficult for the for our children to get access to social situations. So as a parent who experiences social anxiety, one, how do we how do we work on managing that fear so that we can do the things kind of we have to do as parents? But then there's this other piece that I think is also super important to think about, which is that you know, our children are looking to us to get a sense of what feels safe in the world, right? And so if everything feels scary to us or if we're constantly in a state of fight or flight or we're constantly wanting to avoid things, children are going to sort of internalize that, oh, that's not feels, that doesn't feel safe. Mom doesn't feel comfortable doing that. Or mom always gets really nervous when we do this. Like I feel that nervousness too in my body and wanting to be able to recognize and notice our own anxiety and modulate that to some degree when we're with our children when possible so that we're not communicating inaccurate elevated, exaggerated danger to them inadvertently, thus kind of passing along this social phobia. Yes. I love that you're talking about this because I don't feel like it's talked about a lot. And I think we need to give credit to those parents who are struggling with this and they're trying to work on it for their kids. Um, I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old and already, like, I've made social connections from preschool, you know, when my, my son's been in preschool with his little buddies and their moms. And that's when I feel like the birthday yeah. parties start to happen. And you exchange numbers with other mm-hmm. moms. And I'm not someone with social anxiety. So I can easily talk to another mom and say, hey, let me get your phone number. We should get the kids together for a play date. But what I have felt nerves about is hosting the play date, right? And I'm not someone that has social anxiety, but it's like, oh my God, like I'm on a date with another mom. What are we going to talk about? Am I putting out snacks? Are we meeting at the park? Are they coming to our, like literally felt like I was on a first date. And so I could imagine how intensified that is for someone struggling with social anxiety that they probably will avoid that because it might be too hard to handle Um, But then I see how unfortunate that is for the kids because unfortunately at these little ages, kids are dependent on their parents to make social plans for them. You know, they, they can come home and talk about the friend they met in kindergarten or preschool or first grade, but they don't have a cell phone. They're not old enough to make the plan. They're going to depend on the parent to set this up for them. So this presents a real challenge for parents. So I love that you're talking about this and I want to be able to help with this as much as possible. Um, so when I treat social anxiety, I do something called a fear, fear hierarchy and exposures. And so this will help me give some advice to listeners. So exposure therapy 
is when we expose a client to the feared situation to help them develop new beliefs around the situation that they start to internalize and help them cope with this fear. Now, and I try to say to clients, like, you're, if they're afraid of flying, you're never going to love flying. You're not going to become a pilot, but maybe you can tolerate being on a plane for two hours to go to Florida. Maybe you'll never fly to Australia, but maybe that to you is progress. Maybe sitting on a plane for two hours is progress, right? So we start to, I want people to understand, like, this doesn't cure and make you love things that you're afraid of. It makes you able to tolerate them a little bit better. Um, so with a fear hierarchy, you know, I really get to understand the social anxiety in a person. What is, what's more uncomfortable face-to-face -face conversation or the text? Is it getting a coffee or is it a dinner? Is it inviting someone to hang out or is it responding? We want to know all of these triggers and then we kind of rate them, right? What's the most anxiety provoking for you and the least anxiety provoking for you? And then we slowly expose you to doing these things, you know, the easiest things first. And we take it slow You and we repeat the exposures. Okay, once a week, every week for the next six weeks, you're going to get a new phone number or you're going to invite someone to hang out. And we're going to talk about how hard it is for you and what worked and didn't work. So we go up this ladder of exposing a person. So they start to see, hey, that's not as bad as I thought it would be. I'm willing to try this again. And it really desensitizes a person, right? So that's a structured um, therapy session and therapy work that we do as a treatment plan. How can we apply this to everyday life? Well, first, we have to learn how to cope with our anxiety and get really mindful mm -hmm. with how we are currently coping with it. Are you avoiding all of the social situations? Are you hiding in your car? Like, how does it manifest in you? And then you want to build your tolerance for that anxiety with some positive self-talk, right? Tell yourself it's going to be okay. What would you tell your kid if your kid was feeling this way? You would say, go for it. You need to try it. They're not judging you in the way you think they could be judging you. Um, tell yourself that you're capable it's only going to be two minutes to get a phone number. It's fine if they're not available for a play date. You really want to get to know the way you're talking to yourself in your head. And if you're putting yourself down, we want to reframe it to be a little bit more neutral or a little bit more positive to coach yourself through the situation. Is that making sense so far? Yeah, it totally is. And one of the things that you're making me think of is like, you know, when we're, I do a lot of work with children who have anxiety, right? And we do a I follow a protocol called SPACE, which is Supportive Parenting for Anxious Childhood Emotions. And one of the things that we do in SPACE a lot mm -hmm. is we do what we, we teach parents, because SPACE is administered by the parents, right? Like in we do the therapy with the parents and they work with their children. But okay. the parents are kind of taught how to do these sort of supportive statements, right? Which is, you know, validating the child's fear and communicating confidence yes. that they can handle feeling that way. And so what I hear you saying is like the same thing kind of like to ourselves, right? Like if I'm going to notice my own self-talk, is it, oh my God, I can't do this. Oh my God, this is going to be so bad. Oh my God. Or is it perhaps it like sort of the catastrophizing, really, really, really scared version? Or maybe it's like kind of in the, all the way in the other direction of like, you're so stupid. You can't do this. Like this is, should be so easy for you. Like, why is this so yes. hard for you? Like, I feel like we can go into that really self-dismissing self-critical space or we can go into this, like, you know, 
screaming with our like like our heads on fire, like, oh my God, no, I can't handle this. Nice. And so that's what, what I hear you saying is like the way, one, if we can notice that and just say like, okay, I'm moving into that space where I'm really catastrophizing or I'm moving into that space where I'm really dismissing and critical. How do I come into that sort of more more neutral space? How do I validate this is hard to do this thing? It isn't easy for me to just ask a woman at the playground for their phone number. It makes sense this is hard. And I can do this. This is something that I know that I can do. I can just take it one step at a time. Yes, 100%. And that's what I would say. People trying to work on themselves with this is step one, become an observer of the way you're talking to yourself. What is the self-talk? write it down. You have a note section on your iPhone. I know everybody does, right? Jot it down when you're in your car before you start leaving the playground. Like I felt so uncomfortable at the playground today when that woman was talking to me. And this is what I said to myself in my head. You look horrible today. How do you show up to the playground wearing those yoga pants and your hair like that, right? So were you putting yourself down? Note that. Were you telling yourself that she's going to judge you? Were you telling yourself you have no idea what to say? Maybe you had no thought. Maybe you were just frozen like a deer in headlights. The words couldn't come out. So observe, 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 and journal it. Write it in the note section of your phone. Write it down in a notebook at home. Observe, observe, observe. Be really mindful of the way you're thinking and the way you're feeling in these social situations. Then step two would be start coaching yourself in a better way. Like you said, talk to yourself of, okay, you're capable how, what, if this was your best friend, what would you say to your best friend about this? If this was your sister, if this was your child, how would you coach them through this? Another exercise that I teach clients to do is when they start to challenge and reframe their, their thoughts is ask yourself if this thought is helpful or true. Because most of the time, the thoughts we're having in our head in these moments are false assumptions. We're, it's not factual information. We are assuming that this person is thinking badly about us. We are assuming that they feel a certain way. And unfortunately, no one tells us not to believe what we think. I wish that was like a lesson <laughs> in school at some point where people sat us down and was like, hey, guys, you can't always believe your thoughts. You can't always believe what you think. But we're never taught that. And that was the light bulb when I went to school and started graduate school and learning about CBT is, yeah, you, you can't. Your thoughts are not always true. So that's the first one. Question the validity of your thought. Is there evidence, actual factual evidence to prove your thought to be true that this person is judging you or doesn't like you? No, then throw the thought away. And the second one, is this thought helpful? Is it helpful for you to tell yourself that all the women on the playground are judging you? Is it helpful to tell yourself that they never want to play date with your son or daughter? No, extremely unhelpful. So throw that <laughs> thought away also. Yes, I think that's so true. I often talk, it's so funny, I hear all these parallels between the way that you are talking to adults um, and the way that I either talk to parents or like to, about their kids or talk to kids directly. And I, I often describe um, like any anxiety disorder as like having a broken filter. Mm. Like we naturally have all these thoughts come through our brain. Everybody does, right? Everybody has those self-doubt thoughts. Everybody has the fear that someone's judging them. Those thoughts come through everyone's mind. But the difference between someone who does and doesn't have perhaps an anxiety disorder, certainly a social anxiety disorder, is the filter 
when I'm on the playground, I do have the thought, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't shower this morning and I look greasy. Um, and now I've got to talk to someone and I don't know what to say, <laughs> but I'm capable with practice and awareness. Like it's not easy, but you could, but I am capable of saying, you know what? I don't really, that's not a thought that's going to help me. So I have that ability to filter it out and say, not a helpful thought, not useful. People who inherently have these sort of anxiety, sort of vulnerability towards anxious thinking, their filter doesn't work so well. And so it doesn't mean you can't build a filter. It just is going to take more work and more conscious awareness, more self-compassion because you really can't filter well if you're berating yourself because you're going to keep every single negative thought. Yes. You're going to say, that's an important one. That's an important one. Got to keep that one. Like you, So part of the filter is a compassion filter. Does this help me to feel good about myself? Do I need to hold that thought? Does it serve me? No, it doesn't fit my sense of self. So I'm going to let that one go. I love that. I'm going to borrow it. I never thought to use that analogy, but it helps people understand it, right? We're, we're, we're seeing which thoughts get past to bother us and impact us and the thoughts that we are going to choose to stay behind that filter, right? So I love the analogy of the filter. Yes, yes. That is so, so helpful. <laughs> um, another strategy that I really like to use with a lot of my clients, whether it's social anxiety or any type of anxiety is personifying the anxiety, give your anxiety a name, right? So let's talk about social anxiety specifically. Name your social anxiety creature or person, right? Is it a person, place, or thing? Give it a name. You know, is it Barbara? Is it a blob? Is it this? And then really think about it, right? So like my my anxiety person, I'll self-disclose, is Mrs. Anderson. And I picture her as like this principal of a private school that wears like this red jumpsuit and is like, she shows up with anxiety to make me feel like I've done something wrong. Like she calls me into the principal's office is like, Justine, I can't believe you did that. That is so wrong. Right. So that's my anxiety personification is Mrs. Anderson, the principal. So people with social anxiety, name the social anxiety, give it a name, really think about it. And then I want you to be able to talk to it when he or she or it shows up in your life and get familiar. Oh, hey, you're back, Mrs. Anderson. And then I want you to recognize that this personification of your anxiety is actually put in your life to help you, right? Anxiety is about protection. We were wired to make choices to protect ourselves, right? If you think about evolution, we needed anxiety to feel fear, to keep ourselves alive. So we practice discernment, like don't eat that berry. You could die from that berry. Don't go close to that saber toothed tiger. You're going to die from that saber toothed tiger. So we needed to experience the feeling of fear to make decisions to keep ourselves alive. So we think of social anxiety. Okay. It's here to protect us in some way. It wants us to feel safe. For some reason, we don't feel safe or comfortable talking to other people. So we actually kind of want to be appreciative. It sounds weird, but we want to appreciate the social anxiety. Thank you. You've shown up. You're here again. I know you're trying to protect me, but in this situation, you're hurting me. I need you to step aside. I don't need you right now, social anxiety. So we kind of thank you for being here. And then we can choose whether or not to listen to what it tells us. So if our social anxiety is whispering in our ear, like, you look like a hot mess. No one's going to want to talk to you and have you play with their kid. Just go sit back down on the bench. You say, you know what, social anxiety, you're not in control right now. 
I'm choosing to be in control. I'm choosing whether or not I should be listening to you today. And I choose not to listen to you. And sometimes people are like, wow, that's kind of crazy. I don't have that time to process this, but it's helpful and you can have fun with it. It is. It's so liberating. And it's funny. It's funny because what I, what I'll do with kids, which is very similar, um, is again, like, I think this idea of like personifying the anxiety is so helpful because one, it helps anybody, adults and kids feel like this isn't me, right? I'm not the source of this thought. I am receiving it from a piece of my brain that's got a faulty filter. And I can then say, no, no, I'm not listening to you today. I'm not required to pay attention to you right now. So we, we personify the thing. And what I always tell kids is I use this metaphor from Harry Potter. Have you remember, I don't know if you're familiar with Harry Potter, but there's a, there's a third book, The Prisoner of Azkaban, when there's a Professor Lupin teaches them about Boggarts, which is this, okay. this sort of like monster creature, whatever, whose power is to show up as your worst fear. And so it takes the form of every, you know, child's worst fear. And the spell, the way that you disarm the boggart is you imagine in your mind the most ridiculous thing. And then you say ridiculous. And the boggart just kind of dissolves into like this goofy version of itself that's like super powerless and goofy. I love this. And I... Like the kids in my practice love this metaphor because it's totally, it's that. I just like say, we need to take your anxiety. We need to picture it as basically a boggart. And you think of the scariest possible thing. That's what your anxiety feels like, right? Our anxiety feels so scary, so big and terrifying. What, who is that terrifying big thing? Let's make a creature out of it, right? Like who is it? Name it, picture it. Now, can we give it the ridiculous curse and can we make it super goofy and super disarming and where you're feeling super in charge of how much it can like do any harm to you? Mm-hmm. And that I think is super helpful for kids. And I think grownups can do this too, right? Like I think you're Mrs. Anderson kind of, if you have the power to be like, Mrs. Anderson is now a little pipsqueak who like talks in like the super high pitched voice and like you, you don't take her seriously anymore. She's not this intimidating, scary presence that makes you feel like shaky and ashamed the second she's around, like mm-hmm. can make them so ridiculous that we can sort of feel less threatened by it. And then we feel more powerful in our anxiety. Yes. I love that. I love it. I love it. And it's so playful for kids. Like I I'm borrowing this tip and adding it to my, my personification exercise. <laughs> Cause now we're going to magically turn these personifications into these little pipsqueaks, right? And like crush them. Like they don't own us. I love that visual. Yeah. And you know what is hard for people is how intense anxiety feels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love picking up on my own anxiety and catching it. Cause I'm like, Oh, this is how my clients feel all the time. Like now I know. Right. Cause I'm not someone yeah. with an anxiety disorder, but I feel anxiety. And when it's intense, I take note, like, Oh, I'm frozen. Or I want to be impulsive. Like I just got to get these thoughts out. Cause I want to fix this problem. Cause this problems make me anxious. So it's a, so intense that no wonder we avoid and run away. We, Cause if we avoid and run away, it gets rid of that intense feeling. And one of the steps, I don't know if I'm on tip number three or four at this point, but another tip is 
one of the biggest keys to learning to managing anxiety disorder is being able to tolerate the anxiety. Yeah. Not to run away from it, to sit with it, to be uncomfortable and to do that in baby steps. Right. And that's what the exposure hierarchy is about is let's get uncomfortable slowly to see that you're capable of tolerating this distress and nothing bad is going to happen because of it. So maybe someone listening, the first thing is just saying hello to some other mom at the playground or just saying hello. Don't even introduce yourself. Just say hi. Or maybe it's at pickup, you say hi. Or at the parent night at the school, you say hi. That's it. And once you get comfortable with that step, maybe you move to hi, I'm blah, 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 mom, nice to meet you, right? So then you move to the introduction and we have to do it in these baby steps because we want to feel success. We want to feel the confidence. If you run to the playground tomorrow and ask for a play date and get a phone number, that might be too overwhelming and you might fail at it and you might quit and be like, forget it, I'm never doing it again. So you have to really practice this slowly in steps so your brain starts to see this is safe, this is okay. And it helps you expand that tolerance muscle for the feeling because anxiety does subside, right? If we just mm-hmm. wait it out long enough, we, we go up like this peak and then we start to come down the other end. And then often when we're at the baseline, we're like, ah, I could have handled that or I could have done that. We just have to wait it out. And we wait it out with the self-talk, with deep breathing, with coaching ourselves, with positive affirmations, right? Simple mindfulness skills can help us tolerate that anxiety. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point that the feeling passes. Like anyone, even who have a very profound anxiety disorder has moments where they're not anxious. There's evidence that people can identify truth that they say, yes. I'm not, I, I know that I'm, I, there's a part of me that knows that I don't always feel anxious, that my feelings of anxiety come and go. And when they totally. come, sometimes they come in a really intense way and they feel like they're going to last forever, but they always eventually subside. And that's really hard to remember in the moment when you're feeling it. But I think it's a really helpful thing to just remind yourself this feeling comes and this feeling goes. And it can help you from having it feel sticky and like getting kind of grasping on too tight. Yes. Recognize it's there. Like another mindfulness skill that I like to teach is name it to tame it, right? Name the feeling. Identify it in your body. How does it feel in your body right now? That helps you process it because the more we ignore it and don't want it to be there, the bigger, stronger it's going to go. So name it, identify how it feels in your body. What are the thoughts related to it? What are the behaviors you want to do or not doing because of it? And that will give you some insight to your own patterns. Yes. And taking this in this other direction we were talking about earlier too, right? So, you know, parents often... If you're, if you're an anxious parent, I guarantee you've had the worry, is my kid going to be anxious too? And you have all this anxiety about passing your anxiety down to your kids. And like, on the one hand, we know that there's a genetic loading for anxiety. You know, we know that there's some, you know, there's some neurological elements to anxiety, right? Neurochemical elements to anxiety. So if you have a genetic predisposition for anxiety, there's a possibility that your child will have a similar genetic predisposition to anxiety. But that does not guarantee that your child is like doomed to suffer anxiety in a you know debilitating way for the rest of their lives. Like what can we do to help parents who have 
anxiety, social anxiety, any kind of anxiety, who worry about passing it down to their kids, how do we help them feel comfortable in their ability to support their child's mental health effectively? Yeah. So another big part of my work with clients is um, family systems, right? So I do Bowenian family therapy. And we talk a lot about our family of origin and what has been modeled to us and what we're modeling to our kids, right? And so our families, you want to really view as a template for emotion management, how we have relationships in this world, how we create and set boundaries with other people, what we're able to tolerate, what is genetically passed down. It just gives us so much insight and understanding. And what I think is important important for parents to know is you do have a responsibility because you are modeling so much that you don't even realize you're modeling. I love like so I have a two-year-old daughter and her new thing is to like stomp her foot and point her finger and go, Don't you dare. And I'm like, wait a minute, that is me. I must be walking around this house saying, Don't you dare, right? Or she'll say, You won't get dessert. Like I'm like, wow, I must be saying this to my five-year-old and she is observing this and now I'm mortified that she's picked up on this, right? So whether we want it or not, we have to get we have to take accountability that we are modeling things to our kids. That being said, you're 100% right. Kids have their own genetic predispositions, their own personalities, their own temperaments. So they may not always react to what we're modeling, but we want to have self-awareness that we do have to teach our kids how to be a friend and how to make friends and how to have a social life. And if we're not modeling that, we're kind of failing a little bit in the social area. Not one that you have to run home and beat yourself up over at all, because this is something that can be worked on and worked through. I think the biggest gift that a parent can give themselves with social anxiety is getting some treatment for it because it is treatable. I've seen it with my own eyeballs that people recover from this. They manage this, they make progress. So I honestly think the biggest gift is to seek treatment for your social anxiety so you can work on it for yourself so you can set your child up. That being said, though, right, let's say you do have social anxiety and you're not great at making friendships or being social in your home where you're comfortable. You can have conversations with your kids about friends and what a good friend is. Just because you have social anxiety doesn't mean you don't know what a good friend is. Doesn't mean that you know you don't know what to do to make a friend. You could still coach your kid at home and say, why don't you ask that for their name? Why don't you introduce yourself, right? So you don't have to be great at it to have these conversations at home. You probably know exactly how to do these things. It's just hard for you to do them. But that doesn't mean as a parent, you don't know how to teach your kid that. Give your kid the credit. Could you learn how to model it live in action? Yes, and I think that would be great. But don't hold back from talking to your kid about how to make friends and how to have a social plan and the importance of having a social life, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. And I think there are so many resources too, like, you know, talking, reading books with your children about navigating relationships, you know, having the safest relationships you do feel comfortable around, have them over, right? Like everyone's got, even people who are terribly socially anxious might have a cousin or an aunt or sister or a friend who they are comfortable with, like bring them over, model that. Like, so even 
there's some places where you could stretch yourself. I imagine that you already feel like this is some, this would be at the bottom of my fear hierarchy, right? This is something that I feel it would be hard, but I could definitely do this and find intentional ways to bring that into your, have your child observe you doing that. And the other thing I would say is to name it. Don't be afraid to tell your child, you know, mommy sometimes feels anxious around other people. That's something that I'm dealing with and I'm understanding. And that doesn't mean that you have to feel that way. Um, so like you might notice that I get a little shy around new new places or I get kind of quiet, but you might feel like speaking up and you can do that. That's okay. Um, so you can name how you're different from your child too, and normalize that like you're, you, you are working on a thing that they don't necessarily have to be confused about or even in the dark about. Like we can really normalize anxiety by naming it for our kids and helping them understand it. I totally agree with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting to your kid, like mommy's working on this or mommy feels a little bit nervous meeting these new parents. Do you feel nervous when you meet new friends? Like, I think that is totally another, another gift you can give is to be able to admit this. And that's basic feeling identification right there. That is that your kids need to see and learn. Yeah. And it also helps them fill in the blanks, right? For them rather than them filling in the blanks, right? Like if we are always avoiding social situations, our children might wonder like, well, why maybe people are sort of dangerous or maybe nobody wants to be friends with us or who knows something magical and scary. Um, Mm -hmm. Instead, if you say, you know, I have, I, I sometimes feel afraid to be around new people and it's something I'm working on and That's why sometimes we don't go out as much as other kids do. And we're going to work on trying to find more places for you to go out and be with friends so that you don't have to, you know, miss out on those opportunities. And so we, I think it's so important to just kind of fill in the blanks for our kids because they might not know why we, our family might behave a little differently than other families or wonder why they're not going on play dates when they hear other kids talking about it at school. So, you know, I think that's also important too. And what an amazing thing to model, right? To go back to the modeling, to admit to your kid, this is hard for me and this scares scares me, but today I'm going to try. And you then model to your kid courage and bravery of, I'm scared to do this, but I'm going to try this today. We're going to talk to so-and-so, or I'm going to get their number, or I'm going to invite them over for a play date. I'm petrified, but we're going to try it. Mommy's going to try it. And you tell me how I do, right? Do I get an A plus after? Did I get a B? Right? Like, wow, that is such a great thing to teach your kid to face a fear and and be a little vulnerable. I think that's huge. It is. I think I love this talk. Um, how, if people want to learn more about your work and like get in touch with you or get connected, how can they connect with you? Sure. So I have a website, carinocounseling.com. I have a podcast called Thoughts from the Couch. Um, and I also created a mini course for anxiety management, which is really a collection of my basic strategies. So this is really for someone new to anxiety that wants to learn some simple strategies on how to manage their anxiety on a day-to-day basis. So there's some mindfulness in there. There's ways to create a self-care um, routine. There's boundary setting. There, There's these five pillars that I really have found successful 
with basic anxiety management that I wanted to put together in a course. So that could also is called the path to peace. So that could be found on my website. And I also do virtual and in-person psychotherapy for residents of New York. And I also have a one-to-one anxiety coaching program for people that are outside of New York state that, um, I teach these five pillars too. If someone doesn't want to learn them online, they don't like taking a course. There's a way to do it with me as your coach. Amazing. What a great set of resources. We will put links to all that in the show notes so people can find you. I appreciate that. This was so great. So great. Thank you so much for being here. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. I loved talking with Justine about anxiety and the internal battle so many of us parents find ourselves in. And I'm so grateful that Justine has agreed to offer the Securely Attached community an exclusive 10% discount off her signature online program for perfectionists called The Path to Peace. This course offers a step-by-step system that is clinically proven to reduce anxiety, set better boundaries, and help you create a personal mental health routine. So to get your savings, just use the promo code SARAH10 at checkout. That's S-A-R-A-H 10. And if you're feeling overwhelmed or exhausted or at the end of your rope, you might be experiencing another phenomenon that's really common in parenthood today called burnout. So to help you understand how to break free of burnout, it's important to separate our needs into three different categories, our cognitive energy needs, our emotional energy needs, and our physical energy needs. By addressing all those areas, parents can move past the sort of cliche self-care strategies like bubble baths and facials, which are awesome, but don't necessarily fill all of those buckets. Instead, you can sort of tune into true self-care, like quality time with loved ones, fresh air, proper nutrition, and start to really see the biggest impact of that time investment. So to help you get started, I've created a simple weekly calendar so you can be intentional about addressing those needs. Plus, I've created a kid version to help you teach your child how they can help themselves relax and refuel in ways that actually benefit their development and mental health. So if you want a copy of my weekly Banish Burnout and Banish Burnout Kid Edition calendar, all you have to do is rate and review this podcast. Send me a screenshot of your review to info at drsarahbren.com and I'll send the calendar straight to your inbox. That's info at dr. S-A-R-A-H-B-R-E-N dot com. I can't wait to read your reviews and don't be a stranger.